This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks, this is episode 142, part one. I told you guys I was going to do that yesterday, and I remembered, folks. So on episode 141, we wrapped up the analysis of the 1995 paper, Industrial Society and Its Future. And what we showed you was that there was an author back in 1995, 28 years ago, who predicted basically exactly where we are today, warning of genetic modification of humans, warning of the engineering of humanity out of existence, warning of the dangers of the industrial technological system, as they call it, what we would call technocracy, warning about over-socialization into the system, what we would call social engineering. And so we were able to look at this paper, Okay, that was published in 1995 and show that it pretty much predicted where we are today. It was a warning to humans that technology would destroy humanity. And not just technology, but the overall technological system, what we'd call technocracy. The author did not use the word technocracy, nor did he use the word social engineering, as I had just mentioned, folks. But this author was pretty spot on, and he talked about what a revolution against the technocracy would look like, that it would not necessarily be a bloody, violent revolution, but it would be an ideological revolution, and that technology would have to be put up against what he calls wild nature that the revolutionaries the people warning of what the world would look like when technology completely takes over and destroys the natural world and humanity did not have to offer up a solution of a plan society utopia uh something i'd call a half amish style community that they just had to show the counter ideal to technology being wild nature and try to push people uh 
against technology and back into nature. We not, saw some of that actually happen organically over COVID land, the high school theater production. Folks started to withdraw, look for homesteads, pull out of the Rockefeller Medical Industrial Complex, get back to more natural birth, natural medicine, et cetera, et cetera. We saw a lot of that happen. I think that was a product of the pushback to the system we find ourselves living in. So if you haven't had an opportunity, I've covered this paper probably across 10 or 12 different episodes. I had uh, various interviews in between. Eventually, at some point, maybe I'll string all those episodes together and put them out, out as one, uh, one master episode, uh, something I may uh, work on soon. So what I want to do now, ladies and gentlemen, is talk about the author of this paper. And I myself have not done a lot of research into the author in many, many, many years. I explained to you that I had read Industrial Society and its Future uh, probably about seven times over the last 15 years, the last time being about three years ago. And I've watched some documentaries, and I know the official narrative, and I've done a little bit of digging, but haven't really gone down deep into all of this. All right, so I want to talk about this author, who they are. I want to talk about the official narrative versus some of the other information that is out there that's come out over the years since uh, the author was first known in 1996. I mean, the paper published in 1995. The author came to light in 1996. We'll talk about that momentarily. So I want to do a bit of a deep dive into this author and go through some stuff I've been researching over the last couple of weeks, try to get an understanding for who he was. Now, I told you at the beginning of the series and throughout the series that I'm not 100% convinced, and it doesn't matter, but I'm not 100% convinced that this author is necessarily responsible for the paper. I suggested it could be one of three scenarios. One, it could be the author, all right? And he was a prophet, and he wrote this paper, and he did the things that the official narrative says he did, and he got the paper published, and that's it. That's the whole story. Number two, it could be that the author was some sort of a mind-controlled messenger. And we know the government can do mind control. We know they've been working on that going all the way back to at least the 1950s and 1960s. We know that some of the military doctors like Dr. Charles Morgan III and Dr. James Giordano, people that are involved with the DARPA Brain Initiative, have talked about in speeches that we've reviewed here that we have the ability to mind control people even in their sleep. This is why I warn people to keep the smart devices and Wi-Fi and stuff out of your bedrooms when you're sleeping at night. So we know that's all possible. And in fact, this story, as we begin to unwind it here on the author, you're going to see that at least the official narrative says, and further investigation into the author as the years went on, say that this author had his mind tampered with by the government. Uh, some believe it was an MK ultra sanctioned program. We'll get into that. We'll kind of sort out the fact from the fiction. And then we have a third scenario. That maybe this paper was written by someone else entirely and the author was a patsy or the author is an actor. Maybe the author doesn't really exist. Who even knows? Uh, when this happened back in the day, I remember seeing this as a kid. I was in high school. Uh, this was like the O.J. Simpson 
uh, situation. It was on all three uh, news channels that existed at the time. It was all over the place. And you see this guy and then you hear the manifesto and it's just that's who it was. He's crazy. Ignore the manifesto. And so maybe that was the situation. And in uh, situations two and three, the purpose of something like that would be what we've discussed here with guests like Dan Golvach, revelation of method. All right. So basically, it would be the elites, it would be the technocrats, the transhumanists, the guys in charge, the bankers, publishing their plans so that we, the people, had the opportunity to resist or to revolt against the plans. And when we don't, their karma is intact and their conscience is clear. All right. We know that's something that comes out of the strange, uh, dark spirituality that some of the higher level folks actually practice. So could that be the case? Could it have been the elites publishing this and then attaching it to some kind of a patsy, some kind of a dupe who they said uh, wrote the paper? And because the character of this author is portrayed as a very evil person, a crazy person, then everyone at the time, even though the manifesto was published large and uh, you know far and wide, as I, I explained before, there weren't... Um, many media sources back then people weren't on the internet so when it was published in let's say the new york times or washington post everyone would have heard about it pretty much everyone who followed the news at all Uh, so could that be the case Uh, currently today i see this happening in a little bit different fashion they don't really have to publish things even hidden in movies and media anymore because they just send the spokesmen and the puppets out on national television in the form of a Klaus Schwab, in the form of a Yuval Noah Harari, in the form of uh, a Dr. Fauci. And they basically just tell you what they're going to do. They don't hide it anymore. They use Elon Musk for this. They use Peter Thiel for this. You can watch all the World Economic Forum panel discussions, whether on YouTube or at the World Economic Forum website. You can watch all the Bank for International Settlements panel discussions, the International Monetary Fund, United Nations, you know, even some Council on Foreign Relations stuff. It's all published. So they don't hide their plans anymore. So they're constantly revealing their methods right in front of us. Uh, I mean, what did everyone experience on uh, Twitter land or in social media world? Probably on Fox News. I don't watch it, so I don't know. But over the last, you know, 48 hours, it's James O'Keefe of Project Veritas with another video. And this time it's some scientists of Pfizer talking about Pfizer manipulating or the possibility of them manipulating the COVID virus to create new future variants. And then they can create the vaccines before the variants come out. You know, so a lot of this stuff, it's revealed and it's out in the public and they give you their plans. And if that's the case and that's what they're going to do, hey, they told you, you don't revolt against it. You don't burn down Pfizer's headquarters. You don't drag the CEOs and the politicians out of their houses and, you know, beat them to death with a Louisville slugger. Then, hey, it's on you. We told you what was going to happen. So, folks, let's start talking about who the author is. Let's start really with the official narrative. And then I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to look at a couple of articles that I found that I think are very important. And then we're going to get into some of these creepy government doctors that were in around in and around this author when he was 
uh, a youngster. He was going to Harvard. He went there early at 16 years old, and he had his brain manipulated, or so the official narrative goes. So we're going to get into that, and I found some really interesting uh, information, papers, documents coming out of the professor that was running the program at the time that this guy had his head messed with. Now, remember, in industrial society and its future, the author talks about mind manipulation and essentially talks about MK Ultra without mentioning MK Ultra. So, did he write about it because it happened to him years earlier? Did he write about it because he knows more than he's portraying? Was it them revealing their method? I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to know all of that, folks, but I think this is a very interesting study into the author of this prophetic paper. So, you you folks uh, have been emailing me. Some of you figured it out. Some of you knew who the author was. Some of you have obviously read Industrial Society and its future. You were very familiar with this. Others have said uh, they had no idea, but it was really interesting information. So if you've been uh, paying attention to the news the last 25, 26, 27 years in this country, you would know that the author of this paper was uh, Ted Kaczynski, uh, dubbed the Unabomber, U-N-A-B-O-M-B-E-R, the Unabomber. And his name is Ted Kaczynski. And so what I want to do, folks, is start over here with the most official of official narratives. So we're going to start with the FBI's website because the FBI took down Theodore Kaczynski. And if you folks are trying to look that up, it's K-A-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. All right. So, folks, I, I know some people have heard of the Unabomber, heard of Ted Kaczynski, never heard of the manifesto. I've tested this out on people in my real life and they go oh yeah i heard of him oh did you ever read industrial society in its future what's that well they called it the unabomber's manifesto which i never used that term on this show because i didn't want to give away who the author was and most people go oh, it was some crazy thing right well you heard it was it really that crazy it was a thesis paper written against the technological system trying to turn people back to nature right i don't see anything crazy about that uh, most people do that on the weekends when they escape to a hike or escape to go camping or go to the beach, right? They're reconnecting with nature. Uh, the only difference with this author was he was pushing this as a, not even a lifestyle. He wanted to change the whole system back to wild nature. So let's start with the FBI's version of this. And it says right on their website, uh, this is under FBI.gov slash history slash famous dash cases slash unabomber and says how do you catch a twisted genius who aspires to be the perfect anonymous killer who builds untraceable bombs and delivers them to random targets who leaves false clues to throw off authorities who lives like a recluse in the mountains of montana and tells no one of his secret crimes that was the challenge facing the fbi and its investigative partners who spent nearly two decades hunting down this ultimate lone wolf bomber yeah this is on the fbi website right it sounds like you're reading something 
from a true crime episode or something from a, a television show. You know, it's a it's like Dexter. Dexter, the perfect criminal. Serial killer who kills serial killers. Uh, but no, this is on the FBI website, and there's actually a podcast that goes along with this. Folks, I'm going to take a short break. I'm going to come back. We're going to go through the official narrative, and we're going to get into some pretty wild stuff because you need to see what I dug up and found, dots that I connected. I think that others in the research I've done, haven't connected over the years. I mean, all this information is out there, but nobody really goes and puts the pieces together. I'll do that for you when I get back. My name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's pick this back up at FBI.gov. It says the man that the world, um, the man that the world would eventually know as Theodore Kaczynski, came to our attention. That's the FBI in 1978 with the explosion of his first primitive homemade bomb at Chicago University. Over the next 17 years, he mailed or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three Americans and injured nearly two dozen more. Along the way, he sowed fear and panic, even threatening to blow up airliners in flight. Goes on to say, in 1979, an FBI-led task force that included the ATF, that would be Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and U.S. Postal Inspection Service was formed to investigate the Unabom, that's U-N-A-B-O-M, the Unabom case, codenamed for the University, capital U-N, and Airline Bombing, capital B-O-M, targets involved. So that's where they got University. University and airline bombing, U-N-A-B-O-M. The task force would grow to more than 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and others. In search of clues, the team made every possible forensic examination of recovered bomb components and studied the lives of victims in minute detail. These efforts proved of little use in identifying the bomber who took pains to leave no forensic evidence, building his bombs essentially from scrap materials available almost anywhere. And the victims investigators later learned were chosen randomly from library research. We felt confident that the Unabomber had been raised in Chicago and later lived in the Salt Lake City and San Francisco areas. This turned out to be true. His occupation proved elusive, with theories ranging from aircraft mechanic to scientist. Even the gender was not certain. Although investigators believed the bomber was most likely male, they also investigated several female suspects. 
The big break in the case came in 1995. The Unabomber sent us a 35,000-word essay claiming to explain his motives and views of the ills of modern society. And that would be the paper that we read, Industrial Society and Its Future. After much debate about the wisdom of, quote, giving in to terrorists, end quote, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno, do you remember him? Uh, actually, it was, a, it was a woman played by Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live. It was quite entertaining. It was Janet Reno. Look her up. Looks like she's wearing football shoulder pads most of the time. Uh, and this was under the uh, Clinton administration, folks. So uh, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno approved the task force recommendation to publish the essay in hopes that a reader could identify the author. After the manifesto appeared in the Washington Post, thousands of people suggested possible suspects. One stood out. David Kaczynski described his troubled brother, Ted, who had grown up in Chicago and taught at the University of California, Berkeley, where two of the bombs had been placed. Then lived for a time in Salt Lake City before settling permanently into the primitive 10 by 14 foot cabin that the brothers had constructed near Lincoln, Montana. Most importantly, David provided letters and documents written by his brother. Our linguistic analysis determined that the author of the papers and the manifesto were almost certainly the same. When combined with facts gleaned from the bombings and Kaczynski's life, that analysis provided the basis for a search warrant. On April 3rd, 1996, investigators arrested Kaczynski and combed his cabin. Literally could have used a comb. It was only 140 square feet, folks. Uh -huh. There, they found a wealth of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments and descriptions of Unabomber crimes and one live bomb ready for mailing. Kaczynski's reign of terror was over. His new home following his guilty plea in January 1998 an isolated cell in a supermax prison in Colorado. And so over here, if you're watching pain.tv slash gold, we have a picture of Kaczynski. Now you probably remember there was a sketch of him for quite some time. It was a man with a hood with a pair of aviator glasses. Not me, folks. It was not me. And uh, then when they caught him, he had this uh, little beard going on uh, and kind of a longer froish white guy hair and there's a picture of his cabin here folks it's just like looks like a little hunting cabin uh some pieces from the metal and then there's a podcast inside the fbi the unabomber case and we'll eventually analyze this we are not going to do that today but i do want to go through this uh, timeline that the fbi provides uh and so you know my thought process here is I'm going to investigate this over a few different episodes as we do this little Kaczynski uh, expose. And I like to, uh, for my own purposes, I like to gather as much information as I can. So this way, when I'm reading more in-depth articles, I'm able to sort of put the pieces together and I start to see where things don't make sense, folks. This is a real-life research project done in real time. Uh, right here, timeline of Unabomber devices. 
And so we have May 25th, 1978, a passerby found a package addressed and stamped in a parking lot at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. The package was returned to the person listed on the return address, Northwestern University Professor Buckley Chris Jr., He did not recognize the package and called campus security. The package exploded upon opening and injured the security officer. Again, we're starting here at the FBI because this is the most official of official narratives, right? So let's lay the foundation with what the official narrative says before we start getting into more in-depth information. It says May 9th, 1979, so about a year later, a graduate student at Northwestern University is injured when he opened a box that looked like a present that had been left in a room used by graduate students. November 15th, 1979, about six months later, American Airlines Flight 444 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. fills with smoke after a bomb detonates in the luggage compartment. The plane lands safely since the bomb did not work as intended. Several passengers suffer from smoke inhalation. Um... And you were allowed to smoke cigarettes on the plane back then. Maybe that was it. No. Uh, June 10th, 1980, again, about six, seven months later, United Airlines President Percy Woods is injured when he opened a package holding a bomb encased in a book called Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. October 8th, 1981, so we're now going about 18 months into the future, a bomb wrapped in brown paper and tied with string is discovered in the hallway of a building at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The bomb is safely detonated without causing injury. Uh, May 5th, 1982, so about six months later, a bomb sent to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University injures his secretary after she opened it in his office. Uh, Then we go to July 2nd, 1982, just a few months later, a package bomb left in the break room of Corey Hall at University of California, Berkeley, explodes and injures an engineering professor. All right, then we're going to go to May 15th, 1985. That's about three years later. I think Kaczynski was taking a break. Maybe he went off on a long vacation to Cabo or something. No, that's not true. Goes on to say another bomb in Corey Hall at the University of California, Berkeley, injures an engineering student. And we have June 13th, 1985, that's just uh, a month later, a suspicious package sent to Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington is safely detonated, but most of the forensic evidence was lost. November 15th, 1985, so a few months later, a University of Michigan psychology professor and his assistant are injured when they opened a package containing a three-ring binder that had a bomb. The bomber included a letter asking the professor to review a student's master thesis. December 11th, 1985, that's just a month later, a bomb left in the parking lot of a Sacramento computer store kills the store's owner. Then we move forward to February 1987, so a little over a year later, another bomb left in the parking lot of a Salt Lake City computer store severely injures the son of the store's owner. A store employee sees the man leave the bomb, and that witness account helped a sketch artist create the composite sketch. That's the one with the uh, aviator glasses I told you about. So now we take a five-year hiatus, and then in June 22nd, 1993, a geneticist at the University of California is injured after opening a package that exploded in his kitchen. 
Uh, just a couple of days later, on June 24, 1993, a prominent computer scientist from Yale University lost several fingers to a mailed bomb. And then we've got about a year and a half later, December 19, 1994, an advertising executive is killed by a package bomb sent to his New Jersey home. And then we have April 24, 1995, a mailed bomb kills the president of the California Forestry Association in his Sacramento office. So they have 16 uh, different accounts here. Okay, 16 different accounts. Now, I want to just see, uh, they've got... The Unabomber case 25 years later on this site. So this is uh, something that they published uh, in a podcast and such. We're not going to go through this right now. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, Because what I'm going to go over to is here on an archive I found on WashingtonPost.com. And I think this is really important for us to look at. This uh, is a collection of uh, four articles written on September 19th, 1995, July 1st, 1995, and June 30th, 1995. All right, and so this is, um, the first one is Unabomber Manuscript is Published. And we're going to read this because the Washington Post was instrumental along with New York, um, the New York Times in publishing the transcript. So we want to say, see what they were talking about at the time. So they have Unabomber manuscript is published, statement by publishers, manifesto possesses ethical dilemma for papers, and paper assails industrial technological system. All right, so we're going to take a look at this when we get back from this short commercial break. And then we're going to get into some really in-depth coverage I found a lot of really amazing stuff, folks, looping this back to MKUltra, uh, particular uh, programs that were going on in the CIA funding universities at the time, like Harvard in secret. Uh, I mean, really, really good stuff. We're going to tie together a lot of things that we've talked about here at the Dustin Gold Standard over the last 141 episodes. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. This is episode 142, part two, ladies and gentlemen, part two. I told you I would remember to mark these episodes for you. All right, let's take a look here. We're at WashingtonPost.com, and I'm going to read these four articles in order for you. This is in 1995, all right, starting at the time when the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the FBI were sent the 35,000-page Unabomber Manifesto titled Industrial Society and Its Future. So this is written Friday, June 30th, 1995. It was published on page A as in Apple 10. 
and the title is Paper of Sales Industrial Technological System. The document sent by Unibom, again, U-N-A-B-O-M, that'd be University Airline Bomber, uh, Unibom to the Washington Post is a densely written anarchist manifesto that calls for worldwide revolution against the effects of modern society's, quote, industrial technological system, end quote. Again, we call that technocracy. That system, the manuscript argues, has robbed contemporary humans of their, quote, autonomy, end quote, and their presumably empowering rapport with nature, defined by the document as, quote, wild nature, those aspects of the functioning of the earth and its living things that are independent of human management and free of human interference and control, end quote. Well, as we know, the technocrats of today are obviously trying to control all of nature and merge the physical, the biological, and the digital worlds under the fourth industrial revolution. It goes on to say in a series of 232 numbered paragraphs with accompanying notes, the document titled, quote, Industrial Society and its Future, end quote, argues that, quote, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race, end quote, in part because, by definition, organized modern society, quote, has to force people to behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior, end quote. The document inveighs at length against what it calls one of the principal consequences of technological society, quote, leftism, end quote, loosely defined as the attempt to, quote, over-socialize, end quote, people by repressing their natural inclinations and, quote, making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations, end quote, often to the point at which a person, quote, feels ashamed of himself, end quote. And so, you know, we've gone through all of that so far. This is a fair, this is a fair assessment and a summary of the paper. It's almost like the Washington Post is just telling everyone what's really going on at the time back in 95. And I wonder how people responded to this when they actually read it. Did they just reject it or did they say, wow, we should take a look in the mirror? Uh, it goes on to say conservatives are equally vilified for their investment in the existing system. But the term, quote, leftist, end quote, is used consistently to describe those in favor of extensive social control, which is said to cause, quote, a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc., end quote. In contrast, the document argues in favor of what it calls the human, quote, need, probably based in biology, for something that we will call the power process, end quote, which is made up of, quote, goal, effort, and attainment of goal, end quote, as well as an ensuing sense of, quote, autonomy, end quote. The manifesto suggests that the, quote, power process, end quote, is most purely and conspicuously realized in primitive societies in which basic survival needs, as he calls them, quote, real goals, end quote, must be met by individual work, obtaining food, building shelter, and the like.
In contrast, modern science and technology are portrayed as mere, quote, surrogate activities, end quote, of a culture in which, quote, real goals, end quote, are increasingly unnecessary. That is, quote, artificial goals that people set up for themselves merely in order to have some goal to work toward, end quote. Because these activities purportedly further the cause of social control of human beings, as, for example, through the use of psychoactive drugs or surveillance devices. Quote, the only way out is to dispense with the industrial technological system altogether, end quote. In an accompanying letter, the author or authors state that, quote, as for people who willfully and knowingly promote economic growth and technical progress, in our eyes, they are criminals. And if they get blown up, they deserve it, end quote. See, this is kind of where he put himself in the box, folks. But he even said in the paper, if you remember, we had to kill people in order to get it published. Now, I am in no way defending that or encouraging anyone to commit uh, violence against anyone else. Although I will point out, if you do believe all the narratives that come out of COVID land, the high school theater production, and you do believe that the technocracy and the transhumanists are working to engineer humanity out of existence, they have declared war on us. They have killed many of us. Our countries have gone into war you know, over oil pipelines and other things needed to prop up the industrial technological system. They go and kill people all the time. In fact, it's quite interesting because with the whole, you know, Russia-Ukraine stuff going on, we see that uh, Poland and other countries in the EU have been buying natural gas, which they're switching over to under the UN treaties to end all use of coal for heating and electricity. They are pushing people, let's say in Poland, away from coal towards natural gas or home heating oil. Well, the United States, in partnership with Norway, is building out a pipeline to sell them more natural gas, and they want to be the leaders in the natural gas because we're going to export a lot of it from the united states as wide awake jim has covered into poland and the rest of the european union and try to take over excuse me that industry from uh russia so we're over there in a war provoking war killing people over uh, oil pipelines so i mean at the end of the day you want to get your message across buy natural gas from the united states People have to die, folks. They have to die. It's just the way it is. goes on to say, in general, the manifesto appears to favor a return to a state of human society similar to that of the, quote, noble savage, end quote, envisioned by 18th century social uh, theoreticians. Quote, we attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society, end quote, the document says, quote, to the fact that modern technocratic society requires people to live under conditions radically different from those under which the human race evolved and to behave in ways that conflict with the patterns of behavior that the human race developed, end quote. Um, that actually is interesting because that's not in the paper. In general, the man of favor, a return to the state of human society similar to that of Noble by 18th century social theoreticians. Uh, well, we'll have to look into that because um, it, the word technocratic, as far as I know, does not show up uh, in industrial society in its future. It goes on to say the purely, quote, natural, end quote, world, quote, provided a stable framework and therefore a sense of security. 
In the modern world, it is human society that dominates nature, thus there is no stable framework, end quote. That condition cannot be achieved by gradual change or political processes, the manifesto states. Quote, industrial technological society cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom, end quote, which is defined as, quote, the opportunity to go through the power process without interference, manipulation, or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organizations, end quote. Instead, quote, its focus will be on technology and economics, not politics, end quote. A cover letter accompanying the manifesto states that, quote, the industrial technological system has got to be eliminated, and to us, almost any means that may be necessary for that purpose are justified, end quote. So again, this is, uh, I find this interesting. I, I love going back in history and seeing what was being written about at the time that a particular event that I'm studying now, uh, what was being written. Then. So the Washington Post and the New York Times and the, the FBI get a hold of this manifesto, and there's this debate going on of whether or not they're going to publish it. So on June 30th, 1995, the Washington Post publishes this write-up, uh, basically this summary, this uh, kind of uh, opinion piece here on the manifesto itself. All right, now we're going to look. The next day here, on July 1st, 1995, the Washington Post publishes this. And this is uh, Saturday, July 1st, 1995, page A03. And this says, Manifesto poses ethical dilemma for two newspapers. It says, a serial mail bomber's offer to cease killing if the New York Times or the Washington Post publishes an anarchist manifesto delivered Wednesday has created a sticky ethical dilemma that pains and divides experts. Quote, it's a situation fraught with danger for anyone who is involved, end quote, said Everett E. Dennis, who heads a media center at Columbia University, Columbia University, where technocracy started, quote, it amounts to a contract with an unreliable, possibly unstable and certainly dangerous person, end quote. If the bomber is to be believed, the newspapers conceivably could save lives simply by giving him the seven pages it would take to print his 56 page uh, treatise against modern society. Publishers also would have to devote about two-thirds of a page for annual follow-ups for three years. In letters to the Times and the Post accompanying the document, the man known to the FBI as Unabom promised he would then end his career of mail bomb attacks that have killed three and wounded 23 since 1978. So, you know, what they don't mention is obviously the New York Times and the Washington Post are basically cia front papers <laughs> nobody was talking about that they're just worried about the cost of uh, running seven extra pages goes on to say at least some law enforcement officials whose efforts to find the unabomber have been fruitless hope the newspapers will take him up on his offer quote we're looking to any means that would mitigate harm to the public safety end quote jim freeman who heads the fbi san francisco's office told the associated press a task force of dozens of investigators is based in san francisco on the belief the terrorists live somewhere in northern california uh, Robert Lichter, director of the Washington-based Center for Media and Public Affairs, understands how Freeman feels. Quote, if you could be sure of saving human lives, you should publish. 
journalists talk about the need to perform a public service. Here's our opportunity, end quote. On the other hand, the bomber reserves the right to continue destroying property and wrote the Times that the deal is off if law enforcement officials come after him. Although that condition was not mentioned in the letters to the Post and the Times sent this week, it was included in a letter sent to the Times in April. All right, so this was sent to the Times in April. We're talking uh, beginning of July here. That quote significantly weakens the case for doing this in order to save lives, end quote, said Gerald M. Post, a Georgetown University psychiatry professor who has written about terrorist crises. Uh, Moreover, he said, it is questionable whether anyone who considers himself above moral standards can be believed. Quote, it is senseless to apply moral criteria to the actions of revolutionaries, end quote, one of Unabom's letters said. It is senseless to apply moral criteria to the actions of revolutionaries. Quote, my instinct is that publication is a very bad idea and takes the press down the wrong trail, said uh, Dennis. Quote, a news organization should really not be in the business of public safety and police work, end quote. And I, I, I think that is actually a fair thing to say. Goes on to say the bomber already has won front page articles nationwide, along with statements issued by the publishers of the Post and Times saying they are seriously weighing his offer, Dennis noted. Publishing his writings verbatim, Dennis said, quote, ends up making news organizations very weak indeed, end quote. This, see, I find this fascinating, folks. This was the debate that was going on back in 1995. Now, who knows how much of this is actual theater, WWE wrestling, uh, all scripted, just just basically a bunch of nonsense to keep the press, uh, I mean, the, the people of the country entangled in this sort of uh, real-life drama that's going on. Meanwhile, they're printing stuff about what the author's saying. The technological society has uh, destroyed the natural world. It's going to destroy humanity. And yet, I don't think the people of the country were actually paying attention to the message of the Unabomber. Instead, they're watching this theatrical play going on of law enforcement and the newspapers working together, even though they're all controlled by the same folks. Anyway, think about that. I'll be right back. Let's finish this up. I want to go through the rest of this Washington Post stuff before we get into uh, too many rabbit holes here, because we have to understand the official narrative. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. Folks, over the break, I just want to bring this up, see? I have the mind of a, an elephant. I never forget. I just went back to the uh, PDF that we got of the original copy of Industrial Society, Its Future, and the word technocratic or technocracy does not appear in Industrial Society, in Its Future. So 
Let me just go back here for a moment. I'm uh, back at this Washington Post page. I'm going to go back to the June 30th, 1995 paper, A Sales Industrial Technological System. And so when we look at this paragraph here, it said, quote, quoting the paper, we attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society, end quote, the document says, quote, to the fact that modern technocratic society requires people to live under conditions radically different. It does not have technocratic inside industrial society in its future. So that was written in 1995. So whoever uh, wrote that, and it was... Uh, this was not attributed to an author, just the Washington Post. Someone went in and added that because it's not in the original. And I'm pretty sure I have an original uh, copy here, folks. I am pretty sure of it. All right, let's pick back up with Manifesto Poses Ethical Dilemma for Two Newspapers. Uh, Robert J. Heibel, former deputy chief of the counterterrorism section of the FBI, said, quote, I think he will find an excuse not to do what he promises, end quote. Richard Alt, a former FBI agent who worked on the Unabom case off and on for 17 years, spent yesterday afternoon reading the bomber's 56-page uh, treatise, he came away seeing strong arguments on both sides. Quote, the manuscript is a lovingly prepared as his bombs, end quote. He said, quote, somewhere along the way, he has had these conversations before. Someone who would read this might say, this sounds like so-and-so. It might be a service to publish the darn thing, end quote. But Alt also compared the Unabomber to an alcoholic whose promises are worthless than the brown bag that hides the bottle. Quote, he's a hater, end quote, said Alt, now a law enforcement consultant in Manassas. Quote, he's got white hot rage. Trust him? If his word is based on his will, he won't stop. He's driven by anger and he can't control it, end quote. Yesterday, the publisher of Penthouse, a nationally circulated magazine that features photographs of naked women, offered the terrorist a monthly full-page column in the periodical indefinitely, and he renewed his previous offer to publish the manifesto in full. Penthouse publisher Bob Guccione said in an interview that his new overture is an altruistic attempt to save lives, not a publicity stunt. <laughs> yeah, right. Quote, if we save one life, we'd be thrilled, end quote. Critics, quote, accuse me of everything they can think of anyway, end quote, he said. In a letter to Penthouse this week, the terrorist wrote that he would kill once more even if Penthouse does publish his document, if the Times and the Post both refuse to print it. That's because, quote, many people do consider sex magazines to be disreputable, end quote, he wrote. As the Times, and uh, that's uh, Kaczynski there, as the Times and the Post continued to consider the bomber's offer yesterday, FBI forensic and linguistic experts studied every aspect of the parcels sent to the newspapers from the stamps and the type of tape on the wrapping paper to the phrasing and type. Both newspapers turned over their packages to the FBI and were given photocopies of the contents. The post package carried the return address of Boone Long Ho, 
the chief financial officer of a circuit board manufacturer with offices in San Jose, California. Ho, now in Bangkok, said he had no knowledge of Unibom and cannot imagine why his name and the address of a San Jose house he owns were used. All right, so that wraps up that one. Now, what we're going to do here, we're going to fast forward from July 1st, 1995 to September 19th, 1995. And this is a statement by the Washington Post publishers written on Tuesday, again, September 19th, 1995, page A07. And this is a statement by Donald E. Graham and Arthur O. Soulsberger, Jr., It says, for three months, the Washington Post and the New York Times have jointly faced the demand of a person known as the Unabomber that we publish a manuscript of about 35,000 words. If we fail to do so, the author of this document threatened to send a bomb to an unspecified destination, quote, with intent to kill, end quote. From the beginning, the two newspapers have consulted closely on the issue of whether to publish under the threat of violence. We have also consulted law enforcement officials. Both the Attorney General and the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation have now recommended that we print this document for public safety reasons, and we have agreed to do so. Therefore, copies of the Unabomber's unaltered unaltered manuscript are being distributed in today's Washington Post. The decision to print was made jointly by the two newspapers, and we will split the costs of publishing. It is being printed in the Post, which has the mechanical ability to distribute a separate section in all copies of its daily paper. So, yeah, the New York Times and Washington Post were going to publish this. The government wanted them to. Guaranteed the government paid for that. Well, In the end, what's the difference between the government, the New York Times, and the Washington Post? Now, let's take a look at this final uh, piece we find in the Washington Post archive. And this is uh, Unabomber Manuscript is Published. Public Safety Reasons Cited in Joint Decision by Post and New York Times by Howard Kurtz. Howard Kurtz, Washington Post staff writer, Tuesday, September 19th, 1995, page A01. After weighing the question for nearly three months, the Washington Post and New York Times have agreed to publish in today's post a 35,000-word manuscript submitted by the Unabomber, the serial mail bomber who has promised to halt his deadly attacks if either newspaper ran his lengthy critique of industrial society. Donald E. Graham, the Post publisher, and Arthur O. Solzberger, Jr., publisher of the New York Times, said they jointly decided to publish the document, quote, for public safety reasons, end quote, after meeting last Wednesday with Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis J. Free. The papers are splitting the cost of an eight-page insert, which will appear only in the post because it has the mechanical ability to distribute such a section in all copies of its daily paper. Now, let's say that were true. The Unabomber could not be upset about that because if only the post has the mechanical abilities and not the New York Times, that means that the technocracy has not advanced far enough at this time for both papers to have the mechanical ability. That's just a little side note I wanted to throw in there, folks. Uh, Quote, from the beginning, the two newspapers have consulted closely 
on the issue of whether to publish under the threat of violence. We have also consulted law enforcement officials, end quote, Graham and Sulzberger said in a joint statement. Quote, both the attorney general and the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation have now recommended that we print this document for public safety reasons, and we have agreed to do so, end quote. The FBI has been investigating the man known as Unabom since 1978, when officials believe he launched the first of 16 attacks that have killed three people and injured 23 others. Quote, neither paper would have printed this document for journalistic reasons, end quote, Graham said in an interview. Quote, we thought there was an obvious public safety issue involved and therefore sought the advice of responsible federal officials. We are printing it for public safety reasons, not journalistic reasons, end quote. Quote, it's awfully hard to put too much faith in the words of someone with the record of violence that the Unabomber has, end quote, Sulzberger said. But he said, quote, you print it and he doesn't kill anyone else. That's a pretty good deal. You print it and he continues to kill people. What have you lost? The cost of newsprint. That is not a First Amendment issue. This centers on the role of a newspaper as part of a community, end quote. Graham said that the publication of the special section at a cost of thirty to $40,000 will not necessarily set a precedent. Quote, I think this is a singular case, end quote, he said. Uh, very, very interesting, all this drama that was going on back and forth, is it not? See, back then, I, I said, there weren't many news outlets. So the majority of the country was following along with this. It's just I ask older people all the time what they thought of Kaczynski, and a lot of people don't even realize the manifesto says what it said. There, there's very intelligent people I know that never actually read it. They said, ah, I never read it. I never read it. Well, we read it here, folks, and it predicted exactly where we are today. goes on to say, Graham added that, quote, clearly the FBI knows more about this man than we do. Their feeling is there is some reason to believe he will do what he says, end quote. In an April letter to the Times, the Unabomber said he would renounce terrorism, which he defined as, quote, intended to cause injury or death to human beings, end quote, if his manuscript were published. But he reserved the right to engage in sabotage, end quote, intended to destroy property without injuring human beings, end quote. If the Times or another widely read publication did not print his manuscript, the self-described anarchist said he would, quote, start building our next bomb, end quote. At the end of June, the Post and the Times received copies of a 56-page single-space text, plus 11 pages of footnotes and other material. The Unabomber said he would wait three months for a decision. Both papers promptly turned the material over to the FBI. The publisher's meeting with Janet Reno and Louis Free was also attended by Leonard Downey Jr., the Post executive editor, and Joseph uh, Leleveld, executive editor of The Times. It was the second time in three months that the paper's executives had met with Reno and Free to discuss the Unabomber's request, and the publishers agreed early on to reach a joint decision. Justice Department officials declined to comment yesterday. 
media analysts have been divided on whether the newspapers should print the Unabomber's uh, treatise. Some have said the publishing 35,000 words is a small price to pay for the possibility that the killer would halt his attacks. Others have warned that the newspapers have no way of knowing whether the terrorist will keep his word and that accepting his terms could encourage violent groups to make similar demands. Solzberger said he was not moved by the, quote, copycat, end quote, argument because the Unabomber's 17-year record of violence was unique. He said federal and private experts had advised the publishers, quote, that this man does tend to keep his word, end quote. In his April letter to the Times, the Unabomber asked the paper to publish three shorter follow-up pieces over the next three years. Graham and Salzberger said no decision had been made on that request. The Post and the Times published excerpts from the manuscript of about 3,000 words on August 2nd, but did not say whether they planned to print the entire document. The Unabomber's manuscript is a densely written manifesto that calls for worldwide revolution against modern society. He argues that the technological age has robbed people of their, quote, autonomy, end quote, saying, quote, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race, end quote, forcing people, quote, to behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior, end quote. Interesting here that the author also uses the term, uh, well, no, he's the industrial technological age. Yeah, that makes sense. They're not using technocracy or using technocratic as they did in that other piece. And it did not appear uh, in industrial society's future. So we're going to have to dig a little further into that because I've been talking about this with Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays. And I explained to her that the Unabomber was using the term industrial technological society. So she was starting to do some cross references to see who was using that term uh, back in the 1990s. All right, folks, when we get back, I'll finish up this Washington Post piece. Then we're going to do a little background from the official narrative on Kaczynski, just where he came from, where he was born, where he went to school, because then we're going to work into some more in-depth information. I found a great piece in the Atlantic I want to read, and then we're going to start digging into various people that Kaczynski came across in his life. It's going to lead us into MKUltra Mind Control, which we've covered here in the past. We're going to start to look at all this stuff, connect all these dots for you. I just find this to uh, be fascinating. It's something I've wanted to do for a while, so stick with me, folks. If you haven't learned about the Unabomber, you will hear on the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and I'll be right back from this short commercial break. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne. Dot TV slash go. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to episode 142, part three, ladies and gentlemen, part three. All right, let's finish up this Washington Post piece. This is the last article in the series of four that were published in and around the time the Washington Post published the manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future. Just trying to build up a 
sort of a foundation of official narrative um, official narrative stories and articles here as we move further into this uh, investigation. Who is Ted Kaczynski? Where did he come from? Uh, what did the government do to this guy? It goes on to say, although the Unabomber writes as if he were a member of a group, the FBI believes the killer is a white man in his early 40s who has acted alone. He conducted his attacks in silence for years, but abruptly changed tactics on April 20th, the day after the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. The terrorist mailed four letters that day and began to detail his political philosophy and resentments, prompting some experts to suggest he may have felt upstaged by the Oklahoma City blast. The terrorist also sent a package bomb that five days later killed Gilbert Murray, a timber industry executive in Sacramento. I'm just going to write that name down for a second, Gilbert Murray. All right. Uh, You'll see why later on. It says an FBI task force, after scrutinizing the manuscript, has concluded that the bomber was probably exposed to the history of science or some related discipline in the late 1970s in the Chicago area. The bomber's legacy of terror began there. A package bomb injured one person at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus on May 25, 1978. Another person was injured at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois on May 9, 1979. FBI agents began sending copies of the manifesto to Chicago area professors and questioning them to see if any remember a student making such arguments or matching the descriptions of the Unabomber. At least 80 agents are working on leads generated from the 20,000 calls to the Unibomb hotline. About 50 of those agents are focusing on the San Francisco area, with the others dispersed in such areas of interest as Salt Lake City and Chicago. FBI officials believe the Unabomber moved to the Salt Lake City area in the early 1980s and then to Northern California. In October 1981, law enforcement officials disarmed a bomb in a business classroom at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Bombs severely injured professors of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley in 1982 and 1985. Goes on to say the only credible sighting of the bomber came in 1987 outside a Salt Lake City computer store. Now, this was all in the FBI's timeline that we saw. The Unabomber disappeared for six years, surfacing again in June 1993, when two days apart bombs injured professors at Yale University and the University of California at Berkeley. In his April letter to the Times, the terrorist mocked the FBI as, quote, surprisingly incompetent, end quote, and unable, quote, even to keep elementary facts straight, end quote. He said that, quote, people who willfully and knowingly promote economic growth and technical progress, in our eyes, they are criminals, and if they get blown up, they deserve it, end quote. He also sent a letter to David 
Gellerner, the Yale computer scientist severely injured by a package bomb in 1993, quote, if you'd had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way you techno nerds like you are changing the world and you haven't uh, and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source, end quote, the bomber wrote. The last high-profile publication in the face of threat and violence occurred in 1976 when the Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and Los Angeles Times published a statement by Croatian nationalists who had hijacked the Chicago-bound airplane and threatened to kill its 92 passengers. The hijackers later surrendered in Paris after receiving an ultimatum from the authorities. Staff writers Pierre Thomas and Sergei Kovaleski contributed to this report. All right, folks, so that wraps up these four very important articles on the Washington Post under the Unabomber case, the manifesto. Okay, so we just took a look at these. These all came out in and around the time that the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski mailed the manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future, to the Post, New York Times, and asked them to publish it up until the point in which they actually published it. Now, let's just hop over to Wikipedia. And we're going to go through this a little bit. I've already uh, skimmed this, read most of it last night. The information here is accurate uh, as related to the official narrative. So I want to give you a little bit more of an overview, fill in some of the blanks that weren't covered in those first couple of pieces that we reviewed. As we work our way towards this Atlantic piece we're going to get into, and then eventually we're going to untangle all the MK Ultra mind control connections tied to this and bring in some of the work that we've covered here in the past on the Dust and Gold Standard. This says here, Unabomber, uh, Theodore John Kaczynski, born May 22nd, 1942 also known as the Unabomber, is an American domestic terrorist and former mathematics professor. Between 1978, so at that time, he would have been, uh, let's see, what, 36 years old? And 1995, so at that point, he's, what, 53 years old? Uh, Yeah, let's just write this down, 53 I'm just taking some notes here, folks. Kaczynski killed three people and injured 23 others in a nationwide mail bombing campaign against people he believed to be advancing modern technology and the destruction of the environment. He authored Industrial Society and its Future, a 35,000-word manifesto and social critique opposing industrialization, rejecting leftism, and advocating for a nature-centered form of anarchism. In uh, 1971, Kaczynski abandoned his academic career to pursue a primitive life. So at this point, he's uh, 29 years old, correct? Yes. Uh, Moving to a remote cabin without electricity or running water near Lincoln, Montana, where he lived as a recluse while learning survival skills to become self-sufficient. After witnessing the destruction of the wilderness surrounding his cabin, he concluded that living in nature was becoming impossible and resolved to fight industrialization and its destruction of nature through terrorism. 
1979, Kaczynski became the subject of what was, by the time of his arrest, the longest and most expensive investigation in the history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI. The FBI used the case identifier Unibom, uh, as we know, University and Airline Bomber, before his identity was known, resulting in the media naming him the Unibomber. All right, so you have this story that he uh, takes off at 29 years old to go live in the woods. And slowly, the nature around his property, his uh, cabin homestead he was building, starts to be destroyed. Well, I'm seeing that all around me in the state of Maryland, folks. That's why I'm going to go out to the middle of West Virginia. And the thing is, you've got to secure enough land so that when they start building around it, it doesn't bother you as much. Or maybe the value of your property goes up, you can sell it and move out even further. But uh, this is the story now. Unabomber tries to escape, and then he sees industrialization destroying his uh, his peace and quiet. At least that's how it goes, folks. It says in 1995, Kaczynski sent a letter to the New York Times promising to, quote, desist from terrorism, end quote, if the Times or Washington Post publishes manifesto in which he argued that his bombings were extreme but necessary in attracting attention to the erosion of human freedom and dignity of modern technologies that require mass organization. As we know, FBI and Attorney General um, Janet Reno pushed for the publication of the essay, which appeared in the Washington Post in September 1995. And then we just covered that. Upon reading it, Kaczynski's brother, David, recognized the prose style and reported his suspicions to the FBI. Kaczynski was arrested in 1996 and, maintaining that he was sane, tried and failed to dismiss his court-appointed lawyers because they wanted him to plead insanity to avoid the death penalty. He pleaded guilty to all charges in 1998 and was sentenced to eight consecutive life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, I have um, watched several documentaries on Kaczynski over the years. A little rusty on that. We're going to go through some of this stuff. But uh, what was told, folks, was that his uh, uh, court-appointed attorneys... uh, tried to bring up the fact that he had his head tampered with in an MK Ultra program at Harvard. We're going to go into this in depth. Uh, it's really what I want to investigate here, the focus of this series. And um, he did not want that to be part of the record because he did not want people to believe the CIA messed with his head and he was, in fact, crazy because he thought it would diminish the work that he had published inside of industrial society and its future. So we'll get into that, folks, when we get back. First, first we're going to talk a little bit about his childhood, his high school, his life. I want to lay the foundation again from the official narrative so that as we start to deep dive into this, we'll see if there's any inconsistencies in the story. This may be something that I uh, go back to here and there, you know, over the next year or so. Uh, Ted Kaczynski is someone who has always fascinated me, uh, and I'd love to kind of rehash investigations into this topic as time goes on. Because, again, I find it to be fascinating that at least the paper, maybe not Kaczynski himself, the paper, Industrial Society, Its Future, really really did a fantastic job predicting where we are today. And I find it to be uh, mind-blowing that folks uh, really did not listen to the words 
written inside that paper. And maybe if they did, we wouldn't be in the situation we find ourselves today. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash go. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back right here at the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, let's take a look at Kaczynski's childhood. It says here, Theodore John Kaczynski was born in Chicago on May 22nd, 1942, to working-class parents Wanda Teresa and Theodore Richard Kaczynski, a sausage maker. The two were Polish Americans who were raised as Catholics, but later became atheists. They married on April 11th, 1939. From first to fourth grade, ages six to nine, Kaczynski attended Sherman Elementary School in Chicago, where administrators described him as healthy and well-adjusted. In 1952, three years after David was born, the family moved to suburban Evergreen Park, Illinois. Ted transferred to Evergreen Park Central Junior High School. After testing scored his IQ at 167, he skipped the sixth grade. Kaczynski later described this as a pivotal event. Previously, he had socialized with his peers and was even a leader, but after skipping ahead of them, he felt he did not fit in with the older children who bullied him. Neighbors in Evergreen Park later describe the Kaczynski family as civic-minded folks, one recalling the parents, quote, sacrificed everything they had for their children, end quote. Both Ted and David were intelligent, but Ted exceptionally so. Neighbors described him as a smart but lonely individual. This is high school. It says Kaczynski attended Evergreen Park Community High School, where he excelled academically. He played the trombone in the marching band and was a member of the mathematics, biology, coin, and German clubs. In 1996, a former classmate said, quote, he was never really seen as a person, as an individual person. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak, end quote. During this period, Kaczynski became intensely interested in mathematics, spending hours studying and solving advanced problems. He became associated with a group of like-minded boys interested in science and mathematics known as the Briefcase Boys for their penchant for carrying briefcases. Throughout high school, Kaczynski was ahead of his classmates academically. Placed in a more advanced mathematics class, he soon mastered the material. He skipped the 11th grade, and by attending summer school, he graduated at age 15. Kaczynski was one of his school's five national merit finalists and was encouraged to apply to Harvard. While at age 15, he was accepted to Harvard and entered the university on a scholarship in 1958 at age 16. A classmate later said Kaczynski was emotionally unprepared. Quote, they packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. He didn't even have a driver's license, end quote. Goes on to say uh, this is his time at Harvard University. During his first year at Harvard, Kaczynski lived at 8 Prescott Street, 
which was designated, uh, which was designed to accommodate the youngest, most uh, precocious incoming students in a small, intimate living space. For the following three years, he lived at Elliott House. Housemates and other students at Harvard described Kaczynski as a very intelligent but socially reserved person. Kaczynski earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in mathematics from Harvard in 1962, finishing with a GPA of 3.12. And this starts to get into the psychological study that he was involved with, which we're going to be doing quite a bit of exploring on here over the next couple of episodes. It says, in his second year at Harvard, Kaczynski participated in a study described by author, uh, author Alston Chase as a, quote, purposely brutalizing psychological experiment, end quote, led by Harvard professor Henry Murray. Now, I told you we're going to do a little digging. I haven't done so, folks, into Gilbert Murray, who was the logger that uh, Kaczynski sent a mail bomb to. But Henry Murray, very interesting character. It's going to be the focus of one of these upcoming shows. Henry Murray, big, big, big time tied into uh, MK Ultra style mind control experiments, government spook. Uh, we found a 500-page document that he uh, published, or he was in charge of publishing. So we're going to go down that road, folks. But I, I have to set up this foundation for you before we start exploring because i'm coming from the standpoint assuming that the majority of people don't know a lot about ted kaczynski so for me to go jump right into that stuff it's it would be that i'd be assuming that you know all this other stuff so if you don't you'd be totally lost and it would be a a disservice to you goes on to say subjects were told they would debate personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. The essays were given to an anonymous individual who would confront and belittle the subject in what Murray himself called, quote, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive, end quote, attacks, using the content of the essays as ammunition. Electrodes monitored the subject's uh, physiological reactions, electrodes. For that's that's like the uh, EEG helmet stuff that we've been talking about, ladies and gentlemen. Oh yeah, that's what we were running on a MK Ultra mind control experiments. The psychedelics combined with the electrodes. All right, this is why I covered MK Ultra and Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA chief scientist, the torturer. Uh, that's why we've covered. EEG. That's why we're getting into this. It's taken a lot of episodes to get here, but I've been going through this a little bit at a time because eventually, if you listen to the entire catalog of Dust and Gold Standard episodes, you'll see all my work really fits in. It all leads up to where we're at right now. And as you can see, there is this mass push now to get psychedelics out into the mainstream and get people hooked up to EEG through AR and VR, whether that's for work or whether that's for medical reasons or whether that be for uh, video gaming. They are in the process of trying to connect everyone. Uh, As if the flicker rates on the smart devices, on your smartphones, on your tablets, on your computers, aren't bad enough. All right, it goes on here to say these encounters were filmed and subjects, expressions of anger and rage were later played back to them repeatedly. 
The experiment lasted three years with someone verbally abusing and humiliating Kaczynski each week. Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of the study. Again, we're going to get into this. I mean, it's torture, folks, torture, psychological torture. Goes on to say Kaczynski's lawyers later attributed his, his hostility toward mind control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. Okay, because remember, in industrial society's future, he talks about mind control. It goes on to say, some sources have suggested that Murray's experiments were part of Project MKUltra, the Central Intelligence Agency's research into mind control. Chase and others have also suggested that this experience may have motivated Kaczynski's criminal activities. Kaczynski stated he resented Murray and his co-workers primarily because of the invasion of his privacy he perceived as a result of their experiments. Nevertheless, he said he was, quote, quite confident that, the, uh, that this experience with Professor Murray had no significant effect on the course of his life, end quote. And again, this comes up, uh, and we're going to explore this, that Kaczynski apparently said this. I, I mean, we don't know if it did or did not because we can't get inside of his head. But we do know that Kaczynski apparently wanted all this stricken from the record. He did not want the world to know that he had been subjected to these MK Ultra mind control experiments because he did not want that to tarnish his ideology, you know, uh, as explained in his manifesto. He didn't want to come across as crazy, which is why he later he pled guilty to avoid having to uh, have all that come out. And so uh, part of what you're seeing here in Wikipedia is that everything that I found so far, and I'm still digging, uh, tonight I'll even be reading probably six, seven hours more on this, is that it was never totally proven that this uh, Henry Murray was working directly for MKUltra, but you'll see with the information that I put together what Henry Murray was doing before he was at Harvard and that there was CIA money, secret money, flowing into Harvard during the time that these experiments were going on. At the same time, we already uncovered, and we know that Sidney Gottlieb at the same exact time this is going on, Sidney Gottlieb, chief chemist of the CIA, who was running MKUltra, set up bogus front organizations on behalf of the CIA to funnel money into institutions, universities, and prisons to conduct these illegal MKUltra mind control experiments. This was going on at the same time that Harvard was receiving CIA money through these conduit bogus organizations and i'm going to show you some of that i found it not connected to ted kaczynski but in a scandal that was going on in the 1970s uncovering cia funneling money through these front organizations through ford foundation and others into universities harvard being one of them so there's a very good chance that harvard's program here run by henry murray was in fact getting money from the cia i mean come on folks this guy's running mk ultra mind control experiments at the same time the cia is actually doing it i mean you have to be able to uh, connect the dots sometimes and this henry murray guy is brutal brutal just like Sidney Gottlieb, we know that he set up illegal torture chambers in Asia and Europe where he was allowed to mind control and actually kill people. Uh, he was trained by Nazi and Japanese torturers. 
Uh, we covered that uh, many, many, many shows ago, so you can go back and listen to those episodes if you want some in-depth coverage on MK Ultra. All right, let's look uh, at his mathematics career. In 1962, Kaczynski enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics in 1964 and 1967, respectively. Michigan was not his first choice for postgraduate education. He had applied to the University of California, Berkeley, and University of Chicago, both of which accepted him, but offered him no teaching position or financial aid. Michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,310, equivalent to $20,693 in 2021, and a teaching post. At Michigan, Kaczynski specialized in complex analysis, specifically ge- uh, geometric function theory. Professor Peter Duren said of Kaczynski, quote, he was an unusual person. He was not like the other graduate students. He was much more focused about his work. He had a drive to discover mathematical truth, end quote. George Perarian, another of his Michigan mathematic professors, said, quote, it is not enough to say he was smart, end quote. Professor Alan Shields wrote about Kaczynski in a grade evaluation that he was, quote, uh, the best man I have seen, end quote. Kaczynski received one F, five Bs, and 12 As in his 18 courses at the university. In 2006, he said he had unpleasant memories of Michigan and felt the university had low standards for grading, as evidenced by his relatively high grades. For a period of several weeks in 1966, Kaczynski experienced intense sexual fantasies of being female and decided to undergo gender transition. He arranged to meet with a psychiatrist, but changed his mind in the waiting room and did not disclose his reason for making the appointment. Afterwards, enraged, he considered killing the psychiatrist and other people whom he hated. Kaczynski described this episode as a, quote, major turning point, quote, in his life. Quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do. And I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope, end quote. Now, I have read a little bit about this, folks. And we're going to get into some of this because who knows what they put inside this guy's head back when they were running experiments on him at Harvard. Goes on to say, in 1967, Kaczynski's Desertion Boundary Functions won the Summer B. Myers Prize for Michigan's Beth Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. Alan Shields, his doctoral advisor, called it, quote, the best I had ever directed, end quote. And Maxwell Reed, a member of his dissertation committee, said, quote, I would guess that maybe 10 or 12 men in the country understood or appreciated it, end quote. In late 1967, the 25-year-old Kaczynski became an acting assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he taught mathematics. By September 1968, Kaczynski was appointed assistant professor, a sign that he was on track for tenure. His teaching uh, evolutions suggest he was not well-liked by his students. He seemed uncomfortable teaching, taught straight from the textbook, and refused to answer questions. Without any explanation, Kaczynski resigned on June 30th, 1969, in a 
1970 letter directed to Kaczynski's thesis advisor, Alan Shields, written by the chairman of the mathematics department, John W. Addison Jr. The professor referred to the resignation as, quote, quite out of the blue, end quote, and markedly added that, quote, Kaczynski seemed almost pathologically shy, end quote, and that as far as he knew, Kaczynski made no close friends in the department, furthermore noting that efforts to bring him more into the swing of things had failed. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so when we get back, let's talk a little bit about Montana, and then we're going to start this article from The Atlantic. And there's lots of really important nuggets we needed to get into there before I start talking about uh, MKUltra and Henry Murray, the gentleman that uh, messed around with Ted Kaczynski's head when he was 16 years old at Harvard. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. All right, let's take a look at Kaczynski's life in Montana. Again, folks, this is the foundation we're building on the official narrative, okay? After resigning from Berkeley, Kaczynski moved to his parents' home in Lombard, Illinois. Two years later, in 1971, he moved to a remote cabin he had built outside Lincoln, Montana where he could live a simple life with little money and without electricity or running water, working odd jobs and receiving significant financial support from his family. Kaczynski's original goal was to become self-sufficient so he could live autonomously. He used an old bicycle to get to town, and a volunteer at the local library said he visited frequently to read classic works in their original languages. Other Lincoln residents said later that such a lifestyle was not unusual in the area. Kaczynski's cabin was described by a census taker in the 1990 census as containing a bed, two chairs, storage trunks, a gas stove, and lots of books. Starting in 1975, Kaczynski performed acts of sabotage, including arson and booby trapping against developments near to his cabin. He also dedicated himself to reading about sociology and political philosophy, including the works of Jacques Ellul. Kaczynski's brother David later stated that Ellul's book, The Technological Society, became Ted's Bible. Kaczynski recounted in 1998, quote, when I read the book for the first time, I was delighted because I thought, quote, here is someone who is saying what I have already been thinking, end quote. In an interview after his arrest, Kaczynski recalled being shocked on a hike to one of his favorite wild spots. Quote, it's kind of rolling country, not flat. And when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very deeply into cliff-like drop-offs. And there, has, uh, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-day's hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. 
I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was that point on I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Kaczynski was visited multiple times in Montana by his father, who was impressed by Ted's wilderness skills. Kaczynski's father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in 1990 and held a family meeting with Kaczynski later that year to map out their future. On October 2nd, 1990, Kaczynski's father committed suicide by shooting himself in his home. And so then you have uh, the bombings, okay? And we'll just talk a little bit about this. I'm not going to go through all of it because uh, we covered this earlier under the FBI stuff. But it says between 78 and 95, Kaczynski mailed or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that cumulatively killed three people and injured 23 others. 16 bombs were attributed to Kaczynski, while the bombing devices varied widely through the years. Many contain the initials FC which Kaczynski later said stood for Freedom Club, inscribed on parts inside. He purposely left misleading clues in the devices and took extreme care in preparing them to avoid leaving fingerprints. Fingerprints found on some of the devices did not match those found on letters attributed to Kaczynski. And so there's a chart here that goes through all the bombings and then uh, there's a section here initial bombings and then it gets into the uh, fbi involvement which we're going to touch on a little bit here i think it's important as we lay the official narrative foundation to this kaczynski series it says initial bombings kaczynski's first mail bomb was directed at buckley christ a professor of materials engineering at northwestern university on may 25th 1978 a package bearing uh, Chris return address was found in a parking lot at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The package was returned to Chris, who was suspicious because he had not sent it. So he contacted campus police. Officer Terry Marker opened the package, which exploded and caused minor injuries. Kaczynski had returned to Chicago for the May 1978 bombing and stayed there for a time to work with his father and brother at a foam rubber factory. In August 1978, his brother fired him for writing insulting limericks about a female supervisor Ted had courted briefly. The supervisor later recalled Kaczynski as intelligent and quiet, but remembered little of their acquaintanceship and firmly denied they had any romantic relationship. Kaczynski's second bomb was sent nearly one year later. Uh, after the first one, again to Northwestern University, the bomb concealed inside a cigar box and left on a table caused minor injuries to graduate student John Harris when he opened it. Uh, this is about the FBI involvement. In 1979, a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, a Boeing 727 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C., a faulty timing mechanism prevented the bomb from exploding, but it released smoke, which caused the pilots to carry out an emergency landing. Authorities said it had enough power to obliterate the plane had it exploded. Kaczynski sent his next bomb to the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, would receive cuts and burns over most of his body. Kaczynski left false clues in most bombs, which he intentionally made hard to find to make them appear more legitimate. 
Clues included metal plates stamped with the initials FC, hidden somewhere, usually in the pipe end cap and bombs, and a note left in a bomb that did not detonate, reading, Woo, it works. I told you it would work, RV. And the Eugene O'Neill $1 stamps often used as postage on his boxes. He sent one bomb embedding a copy of Sloan Wilson's uh, novel Ice Brothers. The FBI theorized that Kaczynski's crimes involved the theme of nature, trees, and wood. He often included bits of a tree branch and bark in the bombs. His selected targets included Percy Wood and Professor Leroy Wood. The crime writer Robert Graysmith noted his, quote, obsession with Wood, end quote, was, quote, a large factor, end quote, in the bombings. And now it's got later bombings. In 1981, a package bearing the return address of Brigham Young University Professor of Electrical Engineering Leroy Wood uh, Berenson was discovered in a hallway at the University of Utah. It was brought to the campus police and was defused by a bomb squad. In May of the following year, a bomb was sent to Patrick C. Fisher, a professor of computer science at Vanderbilt University. Fisher was on a vacation in Puerto Rico at the time. His secretary, Janet Smith, opened the bomb and received injuries to her face and arms. Kaczynski's next two bombs targeted people at the University of California, Berkeley. The first in July 1982 caused serious injuries to engineering professor Diogenes Angelokis. Uh, nearly three years later, in May 1985, John Hauser, a graduate student and captain in the United States Air Force, lost four fingers and the vision in one eye. Kaczynski handcrafted the bomb from wooden parts. A bomb sent to the Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington, was defused by a bomb squad the following month. In November 1985, Professor James V. McConnell and research assistant Nicholas Sunu were both severely injured, and Sunu opened a mail bomb address to McConnell. In late 1985, a nail and splinter-loaded bomb placed in the parking lot of his store in Sacramento, California, killed 38-year-old computer store owner Hugh Scrutton. A similar attack against a computer store took place in Salt Lake City, Utah on February 20th, 1987. The bomb disguised a piece of lumber injured Gary Wright when he attempted to remove it from the store's parking lot. The explosion severed nerves in Wright's left arm and propelled over 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. Kaczynski was spotted while planting the Salt Lake City bomb. This led to a widely distributed sketch of the suspect as a hooded man with a mustache and aviator sunglasses. In 1993, after a six-year break, Kaczynski mailed a bomb to the home of Charles Epstein from the University of California, San Francisco. Epstein lost several fingers upon opening the package. In the same weekend, Kaczynski mailed a bomb to David Gelletmer, a computer science professor at Yale University, and Gelletmer lost sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and a portion of his right hand. In 1994, Burson Marsteller, executive Thomas J. Mosser, was killed after opening a mail bomb sent to his home in New Jersey. In a letter to the New York Times, Kaczynski wrote he had sent the bomb because of Mosser's work repairing the public image of Exxon after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. This was followed by the 1995 murder of Gilbert Brent Murray, president of the Timber Industry Lobbying Group, California Forestry Association, by a mail bomb addressed to the previous president, William Dennison. 
who had retired. Geneticist Philip Sharp at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology received a threatening letter shortly afterwards. All right, folks, again, I'm going through this because I really, really, really want to lay this foundation of official narrative here, you know, coming out of WikiLeaks, and we're going to be going through some of the resources, but I'm working my way over to this Atlantic article that I read a fascinating piece, by the way, fascinating piece. We're going to get into that, and that's going to lead us into this investigation into MKUltra and the connections of this Henry Murray to MKUltra and what they did um, to Ted Kaczynski while he was at Harvard at 16 years old. I think it's very important uh, myself personally, if the official narrative is true, and Ted Kaczynski was in fact the guy who wrote the manifesto, it would be difficult for me to believe that that trauma brought on in his childhood at 16 years old uh, played a part in helping to develop his ideas and his revolt against the system. Although I do agree 100% with the fact that technology is destroying wild nature and humanity, I myself would not go about it this way. I think separating and exiting the system uh, is something you do. Now, people start building around your property, folks. What are you going to really do about that? You have to buy more property. Again, if we believe in freedom and liberty... Folks have the option to go get as jabbed up as they want, take as many boosters as they want. They have the option to put a brain chip in their head. They have an option to live inside of a technological prison planet. So if you present to them this counter ideal, this idea of nature returning to nature, uh, this idea that technology is destroying humanity, and they don't want to listen to you. Is it not their right, their freedom to live inside the technocracy? We have to focus on separating ourselves from the system. And then if the system wants to come attack us and force the technological system on us, that's when we have a right to defend ourselves. But to go out and attack others when they don't even understand this system that they're helping build, I don't think it does much I'm not going uh, to go out and start attacking innocent people. Although, when you look at what's going on, it is a war against humanity waged by the upper crust of society. Ladies and gentlemen, let me take a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dust to Gold with the Dust to Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash Gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. And I want to thank you for taking this wild ride with me, folks. I'm going to be working on this in between uh, some other episodes we're going to be running here, one on the cycle of civilization. We are going to be talking to some guests. We're still exploring this AI antichrist. We're going to get into more solutions. We've got Wide Awake Jim coming back on. We've got some pastors that are going to come on. Uh, All these things that can help you uh, navigate uh, the world and figure out how you're going to live one foot in 
and one foot out of this system. But the reason why I'm so fascinated with Kaczynski, as I said earlier, is because industrial society in its future, his 35,000-page uh, 1995 published essay on the technocratic system, I think really, really, really nailed what we're dealing with today. And maybe if we can continue to dissect this man and these ideas, we will find a way for us to separate from the system and not have to go about it uh, using mail bombs. Clearly, that didn't work for him. He ended up in a prison cell, which is (laughs) the most confined place that you can be created by the technological system. All right, this is a section here, Manifesto. It says, in 1995, Kaczynski mailed several letters to media outlets outlining his goals and demanding a major newspaper print, his 35,000-word essay, Industrial Society and Its Future, dubbed the Unabomber Manifesto by the FBI uh, in verbatim. He wanted it published. He stated he would desist from terrorism if this demand was met. There was controversy as to whether the essay should be published, as we know. Goes on to say Kaczynski used a typewriter to write his manuscript, capitalizing entire words for emphasis in lieu of italics. He always referred to himself as either we or FC, that's the Freedom Club. Though there is no evidence that he worked with others, Donald Wayne Foster analyzed the writing at the request of Kaczynski's defense team in 1996 and noted that it contained irregular spelling and hyphenation along with other linguistic idiosyncrasies. This led him to conclude that Kaczynski was its author. Uh, And so they have a summary here on the manifesto. We don't need to read that, folks, because we already analyzed the entire manifesto. It does say contemporary reception. James Q. Wilson, in a 1998 New York Times op-ed, wrote, quote, If it is the work of a madman, then the writings of many political philosophers, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Paine, Karl Marx, are scarcely more sane, end quote. Quote, the Unabomber does not like socialization technology, leftist political causes, or conservative attitudes. Apart from his call for an unspecified revolution, his paper resembles something that a very good graduate student might have written, end quote. Ashton Chase, a fellow alums of uh, Harvard University, wrote in 2000 for The Atlantic that, quote, it is true that many believe Kaczynski was insane because they needed to believe it. But the truly disturbing aspect of Kaczynski and his ideas is not that they are so foreign, but they are so familiar, end quote. He argued that, quote, we need to see Kaczynski as exceptional, madman or genius, because the alternative is so much more frightening, end quote. And that's the piece I have right here that we're going to review. This is by Alston Chase. Really good piece. Uh, I read it a while ago, and I just read it again yesterday. Uh, It says other works, University of Michigan, Dearborn philosophy professor David Skirbina helped to compile Kaczynski's work into the 2010 anthology uh, Technological Slavery, including the original manifesto, letters between Skirbina and Kaczynski, and other essays. Kaczynski updated his 1995 manifesto as Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How to Address Advances in Computers and the Internet. He advocates practicing other types of protest and makes no mention of violence. 
And uh, I have that as well. I've read it. It's good. Uh, question is, are we going to go over it? I'm not sure. Uh, probably later, I would want to take a break from Kaczynski after we finish this expose on him before I return to additional works, folks. Uh, according to a 2021 study, Kaczynski's manifesto is, quote, a synthesis of ideas from three well-known academics, French philosopher Jacques Ellul, British zoologist Desmond Morris, and American psychologist Martin Siegelman, end quote. It says here, uh, this is the investigation. Uh, because of the material used to make the mail bombs, U.S. postal inspectors who initially had responsibility for the case labeled the suspect the junkyard bomber. FBI Inspector Terry D. Torshi was appointed to run the Unibomb investigation. In 1979, an FBI-led task force that included 125 agents from the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service was formed. The task force grew to more than 150 full-time personnel, but minute analysis of recovered components of the bombs and the investigation into the lives of the victims proved of little use in identifying the suspect, who built bombs primarily from scrap materials available almost anywhere. Investigators later learned the victims were chosen indiscriminately from library research. In 1980, Chief Agent John Douglas, working with agents in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, issued a psychological profile of the unidentified bomber. It described the offender as a man with above-average intelligence and connections to academia. This profile was later refined to characterize the offender as a neo-ludite, holding an academic degree in the hard sciences. But this uh, psychologically-based profile was discarded in 1983. FBI analysts developed an alternative theory that concentrated on the physical evidence it recovered, uh, bomb fragments. In this rival profile, the suspect was characterized as a blue-collar airplane mechanic. The Unibomb Task Force set up a toll-free hotline to take calls related to the investigation with a $1 million reward from anyone who could prove information leading to the Unibomber's capture. Before the publication of Industrial Society and its Future, Kaczynski's brother David was encouraged by his wife to follow up on suspicions that Ted was the Unibomber. David was dismissive at first, but he took the likelihood more seriously after reading the manifesto a week after it was published in September 1995. He searched through old family papers and found letters dating to the 1970s that Ted had sent to the newspapers to protest the abuses of technology using phrasing similar to that in the manifesto. Before the manifesto's publication, the FBI had many press conferences asking the public to help identify the Unabomber. They were convinced that the bomber was from the Chicago area where he began his bombings, had worked in or had connection to Salt Lake City, and by the 1990s had some association with the San Francisco Bay Area. This geographical information and the wording and experts excerpts from the manifesto that were released before the entire text of the manifesto was published persuaded David's wife to urge him to read it. It says here, after publication, after the manifesto was published, the FBI received thousands of leads in response to its offer of an uh, reward for information leading to the identification of the Unabomber. While the FBI reviewed new leads, Kaczynski's brother David hired private investigator Susan Swanson in Chicago to investigate Ted's activities discreetly. 
David later hired Washington, D.C. attorney Tony uh, Biscagli to organize the evidence acquired by Swanson and contact the FBI, given the presumed difficulty of attracting the FBI's attention. Kaczynski's family wanted to protect him from the danger of an FBI raid, such as those at Ruby Ridge or Waco, since they feared a violent outcome from any attempt by the FBI to contact Kaczynski. In early 1996, an investigator working with Basigli contacted former FBI hostage negotiator and criminal profile filer Clinton R. Van Zandt. Basigli determined that there was better than a 60% chance that the same person had written the manifesto, which had been in public circulation for half a year. Van Zandt's second analytical team determined a higher likelihood. He recommended Basigli's client contact the FBI immediately. In February 1996, Basigli gave a copy of the 1971 essay written by Ted Kaczynski to Molly Flynn at the FBI. She forwarded the essay to the San Francisco-based task force FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald, recognized similarities in the writings using linguistic analysis, and determined that the author of the essays and the manifesto was almost certainly the same person. Combined with facts gleaned from the bombings and Kaczynski's life, the analysis proved the basis for an affidavit signed by Terry Turchi, the head of the entire investigation, in support of the application for a search warrant. David Kaczynski had tried to remain anonymous, but he was soon identified. Within a few days, an FBI agent team was dispatched to interview David and his wife with their attorney in Washington, D.C., at this and subsequent meetings, David provided letters written by his brother in their original envelopes, allowing the FBI task force to use the postmark dates to add more detail to their timeline of Ted's activities. David developed a respectful relationship with behavioral analysis special agent Kathleen M. Puckett, whom he met many times in Washington, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and Schenectady, New York, over the nearly two months before the federal search warrant was served on Kaczynski's cabin. David had once admired and emulated his older brother, but had since left the survivalist lifestyle behind. He had received assurances from the FBI that he would remain anonymous and his brother would not learn who had turned him in, but his identity was leaked to CBS News in early April 1996. Good old FBI there. CBS anchorman Dan Rather called FBI Director Louis Free, who requested 24 hours before CBS broke the story on the evening news. The FBI scrambled to finish the search warrant and have it issued by a federal judge in Montana. Afterwards, the FBI conducted an internal leak investigation but the source of the leak was never identified. FBI officials were not unanimous in identifying Ted as the author of the manifesto. The search warrant noted that several experts believe the manifesto had been written by another individual. All right, folks, so that's going to be it for today. This is the beginning of a couple of episodes on Ted Kaczynski, author of Industrial Society and Its Future. So tomorrow we're going to finish up with Wikipedia. Again, we're just laying out this official narrative, and this way we have a lot of dots to connect as we move forward into other uh, papers and other articles and stuff. So we're going to look at his arrest, his guilty plea, 
his incarceration and his legacy. That's the last four parts in the Wikipedia article. Then we are going to review this article here in the Atlantic called Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber. A series of purposely brutalizing psychological experiments may have confirmed Theodore Kaczynski's still forming belief in the evil of science while he was in college, written by Alston Chase in June 2000. And then we're going to start to go through Henry Murray, who was the uh, professor who played around with Kaczynski's brain. We're going to look at the precursor to the CIA called the Office of Strategic Services. I've been wanting to cover this for a while, but it ties right in to Henry Murray because he was a big wig force here at the precursor to the CIA. From there, we'll go back, tie this into the MK Ultra work that we did, and then we're going to take a look at this called Assessment of Men, Selection of Personnel. And this was uh, a 565-page document that was head up by Henry Murray. And this was how to psychologically profile uh, folks that they were going to bring into the OSS and into the military. Basically, how we choose spies. And from there, folks, we'll get into the CIA financial leaks that tie money uh, being funneled through fraudulent organizations bogus organizations back into universities including harvard at the same time that henry murray connected to the cia was messing with ted kaczynski's mind and then we'll show you how this all connects together ladies and gentlemen we'll start to look at some more corrupt stuff that the fbi or the cia was doing at the same time it's a lot of information it's a lot of work but this is sort of a personal project that i want to do here really going into depth on ted kaczynski uh as him being the credited author of industrial society and its future folks and we're going to find a lot of stuff connected in there i think it's fascinating everybody wants to talk about mk ultra i think this is the best way to go about it and we tie this all up in a pretty little bow and then we're going to talk about exiting the system and cycle of civilizations and don't be discouraged that even if you escape that it's going to build back up into what we have today you just have to do it and then uh, generations upon generations need to be trained within the system within the wild nature system and if it gets back to where it was so be it it's their job to rise up and to revolt against the system once again ladies and gentlemen i will see you once again tomorrow for episode 143 my name is dust gold with the dust gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold the matrix is a computer generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change the human being you're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold.